You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Hello guys, we are reading from 1 Corinthians 14, 26 to 40. Orderly worship. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers and sisters, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues but all things should be done decently and in order. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thanks be to God. Well, g'day, City on a Hill Digital. Uh, My name is Dave Myers, and it is my honour to serve as the pastor of City on a Hill in Brisbane. And as we begin, how about that reading? (laughs) Amen? Uh, Let's acknowledge up front Uh, that there are some jarring verses in today's passage regarding women and remaining silent in the church. Now, we're going to work our way through the passage that we just had read out for us and in time uh, get to the section, the controversial section on women. But first, why don't we pray again that God would work powerfully among us now? Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us faith to receive the word that we've just heard. We thank you that all scripture is breathed out by you and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction and training in righteousness. Father, by the illumination of your Holy Spirit, give us the understanding to know what it means and the will to put it into practice 
And Father, we pray this through Jesus Christ, our risen, ruling and returning King and all of City on a Hill Digital said, Amen. Amen. Well, if this is your first time joining in for City on a Hill Digital, we are so glad that you are here. We find ourselves uh, in a teaching series from the book of 1 Corinthians, written by the Apostle Paul to an ancient church in the first century. We've entitled this series, Crisis in Corinth. And we can see the way in which throughout this book, Paul addresses the issues within this church. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to 14, uh, we've been doing, I guess, a mini-series on spiritual gifts in the church. And so today, in the second half of chapter 14, uh, effectively summarizes much of what has already come before. And so let's reset the scene with the opening verse. It says, verse 26, What then, brothers and sisters, when you come together? I'm just going to stop right there. What then, brothers and sisters? In light of everything that has just come before, it's effectively the question from the Apostle Paul, what shall we do? What shall we do with that which we have just heard? What then, brothers and sisters, when you come together? There's an assumption that we will come together, that they, the Corinthians, will come together, that the church will come together. This passage has a lot to teach us about the church. Now, the church is all about coming together. Uh, church is, is effectively the word gathering, an, an assembly. A church of people is an assembly, a gathering of people. And through the gospel, God creates the church. Uh, In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, elsewhere, Paul, in a letter that he wrote to Titus, he says this about Jesus. He says, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus takes our gathering together seriously. He died to make it happen. He gave himself to to create a people for himself. You see, Jesus, through his perfect life, Jesus came and lived the life that all people had failed to live, the life without sin. But more than that, Jesus not only lived the sinless life, but as we saw in that verse, he he died a death to redeem us from all lawlessness, to redeem us from the consequences of our disobedience to God's laws, the consequences of our sin and rebellion. Jesus at the cross sacrificially takes our judgment upon himself. But more than that, his triumphant resurrection proves that his death on the cross has worked and promises resurrection life, new life to all who would but put their trust in him. We who once weren't a people now are the people of God. We have been gathered to one another and together to one another, we have been gathered, we've been reconciled to 
God. You know what, it might well be that you've landed with us today and you're not someone who would call yourself a follower of Jesus. Much of what we're about to talk about is for those who are already followers of Jesus. But I want you to hear quite clearly in this moment what Christ has done in his death and through his resurrection to gather for himself a people. If you're not following Jesus, if your trust is not in him, you are outside of the church, though you may physically turn up to a church or may digitally turn up to an online church gathering. It's only those who have put their trust in Jesus who are forgiven of their sin and belong not just to the church physically in this life, but eternally and for the age to come. And so perhaps if you've got questions about Jesus throughout this talk or as you've been engaging with City on a Hill Digital, uh, we would love to spend some time with you. We'd love to hear of any questions you've got or if you're ready to even become a Christian and to put your trust in Jesus who died for you and was raised again and become a member of the church, not just here and now, but gathered around the throne of Jesus for all of eternity, please uh, reach out to us. Please SMS Jesus to the number that is on the screen. But brothers and sisters, those who already are followers of Jesus, it matters that we come together as the church. And there's, there's a physicality about that coming together as the church. And I think that's one of the reasons that COVID-19 has been a difficult season for the church. We are always the people of God, but it's when we come together that we church, that we're churching, that we're assembling as those who've been bought by the blood of Jesus. And so, and so while we are making the most of coming together online, Let's be frank, it's a bit weird, right? Let's make the most of it. Let's keep digitally turning up together with the people of God, even perhaps if you've got significant restrictions where you are and can't leave your suburb. We long though, do we not, to come together offline. We make the most of this online moment, but there's something offline in the flesh gathered as the people of God, churching, assembling together. But look, this season is an important opportunity to consider what ought to happen when we come together. Yeah, things look a little bit different at the moment, but what ought to happen when God's people come together? Pick up verse 26 again. It says, what then, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Now, Jesus has given gifts to his people. We've seen this over the last few weeks. And when we come together, we come with the gifts that God has freely given to us. We come with them, able to use them as the people of God within the gathered community of God's people. And so it raises a couple of questions for me as we continue in chapter 14 that I want to consider today. And the questions are this, what is the church for? Uh, And how is the church ordered? What is the church for and how is the church ordered? Uh, And hey, good news. Today we've got two points. I think uh, I preached a month ago and there were six. Today there's only two. They're going to be really long, uh, but there's only two points today. But but look, there's kind of two points and two big 
principles that will help us not to just understand the second half of chapter 14, but actually help us to understand chapters 12, 13, 14 as we think about spiritual gifts. And even bigger than that, that will actually help us to think about what it means to be the church. Two big principles for what we do when we come together as the church. If you're taking notes uh, in response to that first question, what is the church for? Number one, let all things be done for building up. Let all things be done for building up. You know, as the church in Corinth explore how to use their gifts, there is this really clear principle throughout these chapters. Check out verse 26 again. What then, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things, underline all things, let all things be done for building up. Underline the whole phrase. Let all things be done for building up. Let all things be done for building up. This is the guiding principle that Paul has already unpacked on repeat in this letter. Uh, In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, we heard that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, we heard that all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, earlier in this chapter, verse 4, Uh, We heard that the one who prophesies builds up the church. In verse 5, we hear that the tongues need an interpretation so that the church may be built up. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 12, um, strive to excel in what? Building up the church. Verse 17, uh, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up because the goal is being built up. And then verse 26, let all things be done for building up. Do you get the idea? When we come together, we come together as the church, that the church will be built up. The the guiding principle for how we use the spiritual gifts that Jesus has given to us, this is it. This will help, it will this help to build up the church as I operate, as I come together with my brothers and sisters in the Lord, will I use what I've got to build up the church? Brothers and sisters, as those who have their trust in Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, who is building his church, we all need to work together. And I hope you've got that point over recent weeks to build one another up. You know, as those who have been rescued by the finished work of Christ in his cross and his resurrection, we, we, we must go through trials and tribulations in this world as we await the return of Jesus. You know, there's many reasons to lose heart, to be discouraged, every. Every Christian needs to be built up, encouraged in Jesus, to keep trusting Jesus until we see Jesus. And so anything that goes on 
when we come together as the church must be for the building up of one another. Uh, A pastor friend of mine uh, quoted this online during the week, and I shared it on Facebook, I think. Uh, He said this, I love this quote, uh, never, never, never hold back on encouraging someone. People need encouragement more than you think, and your words of life are more powerful than you think. That seems to pick up something of that principle of always looking for that opportunity to build up, to be an encouragement to the people of God. And so when we come together, we make the most of building one another up. Now, we see this principle play out through the guidelines that Paul gives for the use of tongues and prophecy in the gathering. Now, what we've just read there, we've read it a few times, but in verse 26, uh, it's not exhaustive and nor is it Uh, a run sheet saying this is exactly what the church gathering will look like. And tongues and prophecy aren't the only things. They aren't the only gifts uh, that need this principle. Perhaps, though, tongues and prophecy uh, were some of the most controversial. And so uh, there's multiple lists of spiritual gifts, not just in 1 Corinthians. We see them in Romans. We see them in 1 Peter. We see them throughout Scripture. Uh, But here's two where we get to apply this principle of making the most of building one another up. Let's pick it up. Next verse, verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. You know, we've already seen uh, in the first half of chapter 14 that for tongues to be useful in the church gathering, there needs to be something that's intelligible. The words are massively important in building others up. Now, what, what is the tongue interpretation that's been suggested there? Well, Sam Storm says this. He says, it is the spirit-empowered ability to translate or render a public utterance of tongues into the language of the congregation. It, it doesn't seem to be a situation of um, someone sharing something in tongues, out loud, in the gathering, hoping, okay, is someone out there now able to interpret the tongues that have just been spoken? It's more likely that it's known in the gathering that someone has the gift of tongue interpretation. But what's the principle? The principle is if the tongues are only going to build up the speaker, then they are not for the church gathering, but rather are to be used in private between the person with the gift of tongues, and God. Now, likewise, when it comes to prophecy, there are varying opinions on the nature of what prophecy is. Some suggest it's spontaneous revelation from God, such as Wayne Grudem, uh, while others suggest it's broader. Uh, The the public proclamation of gospel truth as applied pastorally and contextually to the hearers, which may include teaching, uh, encouragement, Um, exhortation to build the church. Uh, That's Anthony Thistleton. Uh, I I tend to think it's broader 
than just the spontaneous, the spontaneous revelation from God. But regardless, to be honest, the principle is still the same. The gift of prophecy is to be used for the building up of the church, right? Check it out. Look at verse 29. It says, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Did you notice the goal there, without going into all the details again, the goal there in verse 31 is that all may learn and all be encouraged. That's the goal of prophecy in the church gathering. That's the goal of tongues in the church gathering. That's the goal of all the gifts in the church gathering. Now, these guidelines, uh, I think, speak powerfully into our notions of freedom. Uh, Now, Paul has already spoken in chapters 8, 9, and 10 uh, about surrendering rights, about foregoing our freedom to eat certain meat if it doesn't sit well with the conscience of our brother or sister. Uh, Remember, I quoted it before, 1 Corinthians 10, 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. You see, though we may have certain gifts, there'll be times we forego our freedom for the sake of the whole, for the sake of building up the body in love. I've spent a, a lot of time uh, this week, um, uh, the last couple of weeks really, uh, praying uh, at City on a Hill Brisbane prayer gatherings. When we uh, pray weekdays, uh, we are regularly praying for the state of Victoria. Uh, and are conscious of those in the metropolitan Melbourne region and surrounding areas who are in lockdown 2.0. And um, as someone who's not in the middle of that at the moment, I want you to know uh, that we are with you. Uh, We are praying for you. Um, We know it's really hard. uh, And we pray that you would be finding comfort uh, in the gospel. Um, but it's also been a frustrating week, to be totally honest. Uh, I've kind of broken some social media um, rules of my own. I've spent a little bit much time in the comments section, a little bit much time on Twitter, a little bit much time watching really annoying videos. Uh, I'm guessing you've probably seen some of these annoying videos of, of people in Victoria standing up for their rights, refusing to wear masks, suggesting that the government is encroaching their civil rights, being rude to Bunning staff, wasting the time of the police who have a really important job to do. You know, one of, the, one of the videos had this moronic quote, it is my right as a living woman to do whatever I want. It's not. That's madness. That's called sin and rebellion. Now, here's the thing though, Victorians like many people around the world right now, are being asked to forgo something of their rights for the sake of the whole, for the sake of the community. You know, as as a church planter, uh, we've had people join us for a short time to kind of check out 
who we are and, and what we are on about. And there's been some that have even kind of turned up almost demanding that they use their gifts. Surprised when they aren't immediately given a microphone and quickly move on to find another church where they can force their gifts upon some type of platform. Do you belong to Jesus? Jesus does give gifts to his people. You are gifted. And so we ought to work work out how we can use the gifts that God has given to each and every single one of us, both inside the church gathering, whichever gathering that is, but also outside of the formal church gathering for the sake, not of me, not of my own glory, not of what I can get out of the gifts that I've got, but for the sake of the whole, which might mean foregoing our use of some of our gifts at different times. Why? That the body will be built up in love. I suggested at the start that there's two big principles for when we come together. In answer to the question, what is church for? Uh, Number one, let all things be done for building up. The second though, how is the church ordered? This flows straight on from number one. How is the church ordered? Number two, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, one of my uh, favorite authors, uh, theologians, um, J.I. Packer, uh, recently died. Um, uh, He's in his 90s, uh, and he has gone to be with the Lord. Uh, Packer is uh, the author of uh, probably one of the most popular, best-selling Christian books uh, of the last 50 years, and I trust it will continue to be. This is an incredible book. Uh, I think it's the number one book. This is a big call, uh, but I want you to trust me on this one. I think it's the number one book after the Bible that all Christians should read. Uh, You can get it at any good Christian bookshop, uh, likewise online pick up a copy of Knowing God. But um, check out this very short quote, uh, which gets to something of the heart uh, of the premise of the book Knowing God. Uh, Packer says this, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. God, God, we, we know God. God is at the center God is at the center of who we are as Christians. God is at the center of who we are as the people of God gathered together, bought by the blood of Jesus. God and knowing him is at the center. You know, as a church sitting on a hill, we talk about know Jesus and make Jesus known. And at one level, we only really need to talk about knowing Jesus. Because once we know Jesus and the more we know Jesus, the more that everything else will flow from that, including the mission to make Jesus known to those who don't yet know him. But when we know God, when we know his character, when we know his works, it must and it will shape how we live. Uh, Now, this is a key principle, not just in knowing God by Packer, but this is a key principle in how Paul urges the Corinthians 
to live in light of knowing what God is like. Check out verse 33, the first half of it. It says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Paul appeals to the nature of who God is, of what God is like. Now we know what God is like from the opening words of the Bible. We know so much about who God is and what he's like as we open the opening chapters of Genesis and we see God's creation. We've already seen this in 1 Corinthians 11. There's clearly the creation account and the order in creation is already uh, in our 1 Corinthians 11, first half of it. Uh, we've already kind of gone back there, but in the creation account, what do we see? We see order, not chaos. We see purpose, not random chance. We see see order within what God has done in creation. And we see order in who God is in himself, the eternal God, the everlasting God, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. We see order within the way the Godhead relates within itself. Now, God is not confusing God is not chaotic. In fact, the gospel is all about what God has done to bring peace in the midst of the chaos caused by the storm of our sin and rebellion against God. Jesus himself, we read in Ephesians, is our peace, reconciling us to one another and together to God through his blood shed on the cross. You see, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. He's on about peace. He's on about peace on earth and peace for eternity by getting peace with him, your creator, the one you've rejected, the one who has yet loved you with an everlasting love and sent his son, Jesus, the prince of peace to come and to bring peace to all who would but trust in him. You see, verse 33 here, this is key to everything that has just come in the section that we've just read from verse 26 through to verse 32. Perhaps even further back, you could actually argue this whole section. Verse 33 is key in understanding not just what has come, but even what is to now follow after verse 33. It's the foundation to order within the church because God is a God of order. God is a God of peace. You know what? Many of the expressions of tongues and prophecies within churches that perhaps we might be fearful of. Maybe you've had these experiences. Maybe this is the type of church background that you've come from. They, They just seem so obviously a direct contradiction of the orderly nature of worship that we've been reading through here in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, One commentator, Garland, said this, Christian worship is to reflect the character of God. The Holy Spirit is not like a ping pong ball careening off uh, from one person to another and creating mass confusion. The disorder in Corinth 
is not attributable to the workings of the Holy Spirit, but to narcissistic exhibitionism, disdain for others with lesser gifts and disregard for the common good. The pandemonium of their worship mirrors the fractures in the church. Drop the mic. Oh my goodness. Paul Paul has, has gone to great lengths to let love, remember that chapter, chapter 13, kind of wedged strategically in the middle of this discussion on spiritual gifts. We let love, not narcissistic exhibitionism, not disdain for others with lesser gifts, not disregard for the common good, but we, we, we let love and other person-centeredness inform the way that churches gather and do church as the people of God. God, who He is and what He does, shows this other person-centeredness in Himself, in His creation, and in the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus. God is for you. God is for us. Isn't that remarkable? You can imagine an almighty God in response to our sin and rebellion and rejection of Him who gives us life and breath and everything. You can imagine that it would be just and right for Him to do away with everyone overnight. But God is for us. God is patient with us. God has acted in time and history to show what He is like, to show the love that He has. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, I've been avoiding uh, reading beyond that for a little while, but it's time that we continue to read beyond verse 33, clearly with that principle of order within God Himself that is reflected in the Christian community, we continue. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. As the law also says, if there is anything they desire to learn, Let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. What's going on with these verses? This feels, let's be honest, culturally jarring, right? It also seems to contradict what Paul said a few weeks ago in chapter 11, verse 5, where he said that it's okay for women to pray and to prophesy within the church gathering. It's not just some private moment. It's in the the public assembly of the people of God. But it also seems to be so contrary to so much of what the New Testament says about the role of women. Now, let's kind of go in a time machine back into the first century Greco-Roman culture. Within that culture, women were not particularly prized, were not particularly honoured or valued. And yet, in Jesus, we see a radical inclusion of women in a way that no other culture had included them before. 
Women have, um, I was struck this week just looking through Luke's gospel and the prominent role that they have in Luke's gospel. Uh, read through Luke's gospel and, and even notice the, the interactions and the intimacy of Jesus' interactions with, uh, with many women. Uh, but let me give you a few of them. We meet uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus in Luke chapter 1. We meet Elizabeth. Uh, John the Baptist's mum in Luke chapter 1. We meet Anna the prophetess in Luke chapter 2. The widow of Nain in chapter 7. The woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears in chapter 7. Uh, Mary Magdalene, whom Jesus cast seven demons out of in chapter 7. We meet Susanna and Joanna who accompanied Jesus, chapter 8. We meet the woman who was healed of long-term bleeding, also chapter 8. We meet Martha and Mary, chapter 10. The widow with the two coins, what a beautiful story, chapter 21. The weeping daughters of Jerusalem, chapter 23. The women gathered around the cross, faithful until the end in chapter 23. And then women who were the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. In chapter 24. Not to mention, if we keep reading Luke and read Luke part 2, the book of Acts, we see women joining in prayer, a prayer gathering with the 12 at the start of the book in chapter 1. We then see women helping elect Matthias as the new apostle, chapter 1. We see women receiving power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, chapter 2. We see John Mark's mum, Mary, so many Marys, right? Uh, her home becomes the headquarters uh, of the earliest church, chapter 12. We see that Paul's first European convert is a woman, Lydia. What a legend, chapter 16. We see Priscilla, along with her husband, Aquila, instructing Apollos in chapter 18. We see Priscilla mentioned many times. We see the four prophesying daughters of Philip in chapter 21. We could go on. You know, not to mention in Paul's writings, we see the role of deaconess. We see the role even for a widow. We see in Romans chapter 16, the 10 women mentioned by Paul as co-workers with Paul in the gospel. And then again in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as we've just seen and we looked at a couple of weeks ago, we've seen that women are welcome to pray and to prophesy within the assembled gathering of God's people. That, that was fairly rapid fire, but I, I hope that you can see that in Jesus, he is certainly not against women, anti-women. And likewise, I hope that you can see in the life and the ministry and the writings of Paul that he is certainly not anti-women. Jesus and Paul in the ancient world are revolutionary. Christianity is revolutionary when it comes to the place of women. Men and women are one in Christ Jesus. So what's going on? In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 14, here in verse 34 and verse 35, why this prohibition? Does this contradict everything I've just said? about Jesus and about Paul and about their inclusion and embrace of women in the life of the church and the ministry of the church. Well, let's remember the preceding context. Keep your Bible open. We're not going to reread the whole verses, but it's not only women who are silenced. Scan your eyes back up to verse 28. There are tongue speakers who are told to be silent. Then there in verse 30, there are prophets 
who are told to be silent. And now in verse 34, women are told to be silent. Now, we need to realize that none of these silencings, none of these statements are absolute. Not all tongue speakers all the time must be silent. Not all prophets all the time must be silent. Not all women all the time must be silent. So what does it mean? Well, I've come across at least 10 different understandings of what this verse actually means, and I'm going to give you all 10. No, this isn't an essay. Uh, I'd be happy to pass them on if you'd like to read uh, a few more of them. Uh, we, We don't have the time to discuss all of them, but I want to tentatively put forward what I believe best fits with the context from all the reading that I've done in the scriptures, but also uh, a whole bunch of commentators on this section. I want to suggest that this prohibition, this um, instruction to not have women speak and to be kept silent, verse 34, in the churches, relates back to verse 29. Have a look with me at verse 29. It says, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. It's in the context of weighing a prophetic word. That seems to be the the, the flow of argument, not three different topics where we have um, tongues, where we have um, prophecy, where we have women. This actually seems to flow on from the discussion about prophecy and in particular, verse 29, the weighing up of prophetic words. Now, uh, first, each of us ought to actually take responsibility to weigh what is said in a prophetic word. All all believers, we ought to take responsibility for for weighing up what we hear. We we do that as we we ask questions um, of what we've heard in uh, in a potential prophetic word. Uh, Sam Storms, uh, he suggests a bunch of questions, but here's his first three questions. He says, number one, is it consistent with Scripture? Number two, does it build up the church? And number three, is it done in love, right? That all Christians, we have the responsibility of asking those questions of a prophetic word. Not every random thought or image that pops into someone's head is from God. Someone comes up to you and says they've got a word from God. They probably don't. Hear them out though. Test it with scripture. Is it done to build up the church? Is it done in love? But here's the thing. Uh, While we all have a responsibility to weigh up what is said, in the early church, this task of weighing what the prophets said was emerging as a task fulfilled by the pastors and elders within the church community. The, the, The pastors and teachers that have authority within the church. And they determined which words which potential prophetic words ought to be applied to the church. And so uh, it's suggested by commentators that the command to remain silent in verse 34 is in the context of publicly weighing the prophetic words that have been given and that this is a moment in particular for the pastor, elder, teachers in the congregation to weigh up what has been said. Now at City on a Hill 
uh, along with Acts 29 churches. Acts 29 is a church, a global diverse family of church planting churches, a network that City on a Hill churches are part of. Um, we would kind of land in a position when it comes to the role of men and women and how we relate uh, with the position of complementarian. Um, now we've We've done sermons on this before. Uh, you can read about this uh, in other places. We don't have time to dig into it uh, in depth. But basically, uh, complementarian says that uh, we are equal but different. Men and women are equal. We are equal. We're equally made in the image of God. We've equally sinned against God and need to be rescued by Jesus. And we are equally, as we put our trust in Jesus, remade in the image of Christ Jesus. But complementarian understanding of Scripture would say that there are different roles for men and women within the home and within the church. Uh, Within the home, husbands are called to sacrificially lead their wives through serving. It's not permission to be a jerk, man. It's a call to lay down your life for your bride like Christ has laid down his life for the church. That's a high calling and expectation on Christian husbands. And likewise, in the church, qualified men. And you can look at a bunch of those qualifications in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Qualified men are called to sacrificially lead the church through authoritative teaching and governance, through shepherd, shepherding and care. And so that public weighing of prophecy seems to be reserved for those qualified men, those set up as elders, entrusted in the church of God. Every other role in the gathering seems to be open equally to men and women. Prayer and tongues and bringing a hymn or a psalm, prophecy, exhortation and and so on. Now, as well as uh, the order in the gathering, uh, verse 34, verse 35 um, also shows that Paul has a concern for the order in the relationship between the husband and the wife. Uh, Go back a few weeks, listen to Pastor Nick Coombe's sermon on 1 Corinthians 11, uh, and I think there's some similar themes that Paul in verse 35 is picking up, would commend that sermon to you uh, if you haven't listened to it. But Paul is concerned that there is order in the relationship between the husband and the wife in the public assembly. Yeah, it's appropriate to discuss these things, but in a helpful way that won't bring shame and recognises the different roles within the marriage and within the church. Well, we began with considering what we do when we come together. And I wanted to show you from 1 Corinthians 14 that there are two big principles for when we come together. Number one, we let all things be done for building up. And number two, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, in many ways, perhaps you've um, seen excess and abuse of spiritual gifts in different church movements that perhaps you've even personally been part of, perhaps you've been wounded uh, by some of the things that you've seen, some of the chaos that you've experienced. You've been very confused by what you've heard and by the lack of clarity of what's taking place publicly and and whether things are being explained and tongues and, and so on. 
But I want to encourage you to not swing the pendulum too far the other way. I'd hope that as we get to the end of this uh, mini-series within the series of 1 Corinthians, that we wouldn't swing the pendulum too far the other way and ignore spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are a gift for building up the church. But done with order, as God is a God of order and peace. And so in each of our City on a Hill churches, or whatever church you're part of, we need to work out how to apply this teaching in our large gatherings. We need to work out how to apply this teaching in our gospel communities, in our prayer gatherings, and in our one-to-one relationships. Let me conclude uh, with the encouragement from the final paragraph of 1 Corinthians 14, and then we'll pray together. Verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers and sisters, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that in the gospel of Christ Jesus, in his perfect life, in his sacrificial death, in his triumphant resurrection, you have done a work to rescue a people for yourself. You have done a work where we are at war with you. You have made peace through Christ who died, through Christ who was raised. And Father, we thank you that as those who've been saved by Jesus, We thank you that we get to gather with Jesus' people. We thank you that we get to um, be together. And Father, right now we we long across all our churches to, to be together in a way that we can't be right now. But we thank you for the opportunities to do that through um, weird, (laughs) but okay means online. But Father, as we consider what it means to be the people of God, would you help us to be people who, who continue to let all things be done for building up, that we would be shaped by who you are and what you do, knowing that you are not a God of confusion, but of peace. And that, Father, as we seek to apply this teaching in our own lives and in each of our churches, that we would earnestly desire to prophesy, that we would not forbid speaking in tongues, but that we would seek to do those things decently and in order. We pray this for our good. We pray this for our encouragement in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this for the sake of the world around us that needs to know him as well. But ultimately, we pray it for the glory of your holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.